Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. We've spent a lot of time talking about markets over the last 12 months and we've had a very good reason to do that. But today we're going to take a completely different tack and ask, what's it all for? Does all of this obsession about money, and there's been a lot of obsession about money over the last 12 months and wealth, does it matter that much? And if it does matter, I think we all know it matters to some extent, how much do you really need to be happy? Today, I'm joined by Dean Pearson of the NAB Economics team to talk about his research into this topic. And I should say before we get started, I've been asked several times to cover this topic and I've been asked to speak to Dean many, many times because he's spoken to our business and many of our clients and people love hearing him and love hearing what he's talking about. So I've been really looking forward to it and I hope that you're going to enjoy it as much as I will. Dean, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Jim. I'm happy to be here. So first question, Dean, let's give a bit of... uh, context to your research. So this is research. It's not just an opinion. NAB's been tracking Australia's well-being levels quarterly since 2014. So you're an economist. Economists generally are pretty indifferent to well-being. Can you tell me why you're interested? <laughs> um, there's a number of reasons, but you're right. I mean, ever since the 1940s, societies and economists have primarily measured, say, a country's progress through economic growth. And I would say, despite the fact that very few Australians could even define what GDP means or how it's measured, there's really a general acceptance that if the economy is growing, then things must be pretty good. Um, Of course, economic growth, it matters a lot. And as you've touched on, it matters a lot in the last 12 months. It's central, of course, to the jobs and all the opportunities that it will create in our society. So I'm not in any way suggesting that we should underestimate how important it is, but it really doesn't paint the whole picture. We know that despite economic growth as a society, Australia and and pretty much most advanced economies across the world have simultaneously become a lot more anxious, more depressed and no happier. So what we think we really need is a broader definition of progress, but more particularly, we have to pay a lot closer attention to how people are feeling. Now, there's a professor from the London School of Economics, it's a man named Richard Layard, and he was one of the first economists to really work on this notion of happiness. And I think his explanation as to why we need to monitor wellbeing It's probably the best one I've read, and I wish I was able to have uh, been articulate enough to think of it. And he simply puts it like this, how people feel is the deepest reality of their experience of life. So it's the way that we should think about a person's life. It's how they experience it, not as we think it should be. And I think as economists, we far too often assume we know how people feel and how they're going to react to any given economic or broader societal issue, rather than really genuinely trying to understand how people experience their life, so their actual life. And economists already make an awful lot of assumptions about how we feel and how we act. For example, we, we assume that people will seek to make themselves as happy as possible. So in economic speak, that basically means we, we maximise our own utility. Um, but while most of us probably have a list of things in our back of our minds that we think will make us happy. Often these expectations are are their way off. And if we're lucky enough to get what we really wished for, we might discover that it doesn't come with lifelong happiness or at the same time, perhaps if things we dread come to pass, they might not crush us after all. Because, you know, at the core of economics is fundamentally the notion that all human beings, including you and me, are basically hyper-rational, self-interested, materialistic, all-knowing robots who, above all, are never affected by emotions whatsoever. So, in other words, 
and I've been back to my old university, we still teach our kids that human beings act like no human has ever acted. But we know that people don't behave rationally in the narrow world of economic theory. Um, we can't. Our brains aren't capable of making the many hundreds of rigorously logical calculations you would need to to make us rational. But nor are we completely irrational. So we do the best we possibly can with the information that we have to hand. And I think now more than ever, what economists really need to do is have a genuine interest in the broader social sciences because we are a social science, believe it or not, although we're, we're much more data-centric now, but particularly the study of human behaviour. And while everybody's moods and circumstances will fluctuate, there is an underlying average that, you know, you can measure over time. I've got so many questions and I was also laughing in the background because so much of what you said makes so much sense. I remember learning at school and at uni about this idea of maximising your utility and you're like, there's literally no person ever who has gone out in the world and going, today I'm going to maximise my utility. That's what I'm going to no. do. It's <laughs> not how we think. It's, it's um, not how we work, no. It's, um, yeah, that's the model, right? And it's all the models. All the models are based on that, which is quite funny. So uh, how do you measure wellbeing? So now you're an economics team. You've got to make this stuff look legit. How do you measure wellbeing? Um, and we do try and make it look as legit as possible. And how we do that is we model our wellbeing index, which has been running since about 2014 quarterly. It's modelled on a methodology developed by the Nobel Prize winning economist Daniel Kahneman. And he looks at wellbeing through four areas. And, and this is quite important. It's life satisfaction, life worth, anxiety and happiness. And we base those questions on a survey of over 2,000 Australians who are representative of the adult population. So they're representative of state and gender, age and a whole range of other demographics. So we get a really good cross-section of society and that's particularly important because we want to be able to identify groups that are struggling or perhaps slipping through the cracks. And at looking at those four domains of wellbeing, you get a sense to whether people are happy in their life, so emotions like joy as opposed to more negative ones, but more particularly with their life, so a sense that their life is, is tracking well. And we know our well-being is influenced by a whole range of things, like our family and our relationships and our general optimism. We know our genetics also play a role. Some people are just born with a higher predisposition to being happy. But there are a whole range of external factors, and as an economist, these are critically important, that play a role, like employment, like the quality of our housing, like our education, like gender imbalances. And even though there is a preset position for some of our happiness, we know that we can do a lot to influence over and above genetics. So well-being, you know, happiness is part of it, but you can have a sense of well-being without being particularly happy too. It's not about feeling good all the time. It's about how we manage those difficult experiences and feelings and how we appreciate, you know, the better ones. But even how I think we understand the whole concept of happiness has changed over time. So if you go back a long time in history, happiness was something that people really could only experience when they died. So basically you look to the next life, don't worry about now, suffer a miserable life and it's all coming. After about World War II, it became much more anchored around strong bonds in society, more welfare provision. But then about in the late 1970s, it became much more about the individual. So it was more about anchored how our lives and our own happiness worked. I think what we're seeing post-COVID is this shift back towards a more collective notion of happiness, building towards community, looking out for each other, all of these sort of things. But irrespective of how you define it, average happiness, and this is a real lesson for all economists, averages don't tell you a lot. It's not the point, it's how it's distributed. So a sizable minority of Australians are profoundly happy. 
whereas an equal number of us are pretty much utterly miserable. When you add up total wellbeing, this applies to total production in an economy like GDP, you miss a really key measure, and that's inequality. So it's that gap between income, wealth, and opportunity, and we know that that divide has been accelerating. Let's talk about the last 12 months, though, because you've made this point about a post-COVID world, and unfortunately, given our vaccination rates, we're not quite post-COVID yet. (laughs) Hopefully we'll be post-COVID soon. Tell me, how has the last 12 months, has anything changed in the last 12 months or have we pretty much stayed relatively secure emotionally? So much has changed. (laughs) This is where things could get a bit long, but I'll I'll abbreviate it. Um, Of course, we know it's affected the wellbeing and mental health of a lot of people. And some of the things that we know are linked to happiness, like family, friends, travel, employment, you know, they've all been heavily disrupted. But while many people have become more anxious during COVID, some people, this has triggered or it's really intensified much more serious mental health problems. But while a significant minority may continue to struggle long-term, the pandemic probably also really highlighted one of the fundamental tenets of, of being a human being, and that is our resilience and our stress levels can really bounce back. So we have this enormous capacity as human beings to bounce back after a catastrophic event. Indeed, I think if you look at countries like Australia, particularly where I'm based in Melbourne, you know, it's being monitored really quite closely because wellbeing levels have collapsed and they've snapped back, particularly as lockdowns and social restrictions are eased. So we've run our wellbeing index four times since COVID. We're currently looking at um, the March quarter. And the changes in wellbeing that time have been really significant, which is really important for a business owner because I often get asked, well, why do you track wellbeing quarterly? People's moods and attitudes, surely they don't change month to month or quarter to quarter. They they really do. If you look at um, the March quarter of 2020, so we're back in the heart of COVID, wellbeing collapsed. So it fell to survey low levels. We had really awful levels of anxiety. People were much less happy, but something else interesting also happened. People started to report high levels of life worth and life satisfaction. So it was really suggesting that people were looking at life through a broader lens. So we're starting to appreciate, yes, they were much more anxious about the direct impacts of COVID, and we know what those direct concerns were, but they were also bouncing back a little bit. But we also, as you mentioned before about inequality, started to get a feel for those who were most vulnerable. And while anxiety went up across the board, it was particularly notable for young people, older people and people living in apartments who, of course, faced some really unique challenges during lockdown with more common areas and, you know, space limitations and so forth. And young people, we know, you know, they tend to gather a large amount of information from social media. That's part of the issue. But from an economic perspective, there are also some really strong economic reasons because they suffered the biggest job losses. The pandemic, we know, has also impacted female workers more than men who are much more represented in in casual employment, but also in some of the sectors more heavily impacted. For older people, because older people typically have much higher levels of wellbeing, but of course COVID presented a unique challenge because of the much higher mortality rates amongst older Australians, uh, and that was a concern. Healthcare workers also. So things were looking really grim. Then by the June quarter, we staged this big V-shaped recovery in wellbeing led by much lower levels of anxiety. Happiness went up, life satisfaction also increased again. So some people started to report quite positive experiences relating to COVID, you know, better work-life balance, more time with the family, living more simply, having more empathy for others. All these things started to come through. But what we did start to see was the gap widening up between those who had high levels of wellbeing and those who had low. And not surprisingly, some of those groups were the unemployed, younger people and low income earners were really starting to sort of stand out. Because when people lose jobs, 
their wellbeing falls really sharply. And it's not just because of income, it's loss of social status, connection, life structure. Our brains place an awful lot of value on our job. And we know that, you know, the research shows that even working a few hours a week can really significantly boost your wellbeing. Then we got into the third quarter and wellbeing fell again, but it fell particularly in Victoria because, of course, Victorians were the ones that were disproportionately affected by lockdown and business closures and so forth during then. Then the fourth quarter sort of kicks back and Victoria's roared back again. So the message, I think, really in all that is, A, we're really resilient. B, anxiety has continued throughout COVID. So about four in 10 Australians identifies having very high levels of anxiety. But the people, the marginal areas, the people who particularly are being impacted, like the unemployed, like people who have lost their primary source of income because of COVID, and that gap between women and men, are these are the sorts of things that are, that are somewhat concerning and are masked by averages that look pretty good. There's so much in there and I think it's fascinating to hear about that V-shaped recovery and then your point that the V-shaped recovery, there's plenty of people who are feeling great and there's a lot of people who are feeling terrible and so your average looks pretty decent but when you split mm. it out it looks quite different. Uh, and I would say that mirrors many of our experiences, right? If you if you mix in a reasonably broad circle, you would see people at all ends of that. I think also people's personal circumstances, and you probably have this in your data, are so telling. People who live on their own seem to have been so vulnerable through this situation, whereas those of us with families were like, wow, if I could get five minutes to myself, that'd be awesome. Um, <laughs> the idea yeah, of isolation like... sounds delightful sometimes when <laughs> yeah, you've got small yeah. kids. But for others, you're like, I really need to get out and see some people. And if you can't, that's horrendous. You've made some allusions to the fact that financial status matters. There are those, you know, I work in obviously in a trading business and we have obviously had so much interest from people investing over the last 12 months. So that's the cohort of people who've got through COVID just fine. They're not at the most vulnerable yeah, yeah. end. They've had money to invest. They're very excited about taking advantage of market ructions and so on. Can you tell me a little bit about how much money is the difference for those groups of people? Like, is it making those people who have money to invest happier than those people who don't? Is it is it a very literal difference between the groups? Um, undeniably, yes. Uh, you know, when you do this job for a living, the primary question people ask is, does money buy happiness? And the answer is, it definitely does, particularly in societies like ours. So if we look at wellbeing by income levels and you know, we can see a really significant gap between those on higher incomes and those earning significantly lower. And that gap is widening. So in a society like ours, uh, our wellbeing will broadly increase as our salary gets bigger, especially though for those people on low incomes. Now, most of the research will show that once your income hits a certain level, and in Australia, it's about $100,000, the link between money and well-being starts to taper off a bit. So the increase in happiness associated with each additional dollar starts to diminish. And there are two really important reasons for that. Once we're financially secure, we tend to overestimate the value of more money. So we're adaptable and we will swiftly adjust to that new level of wealth. Secondly, you know, people will compare themselves to their peers. So that happiness uplift is pretty fleeting. So relative happiness matters more than absolute happiness. But there's a lot of discussion around this. There are plenty of other studies that claim money does buy happiness and more money you have buys even more. I'm not so sure, but what is really true is when we can financially take care of ourselves, our family, our mental health improves and our ability you know, to meet basic needs 
um, without working multiple jobs, without having a succession of jobs to try and just keep ends meet, we're more likely to have time, which is really important for happiness. But to extract the most happiness out of your income, you first have to know what makes you happy. And then you have to use that money to promote the things that make you happy. So the bottom line is how much money a person needs to be happy varies. So I'm not saying happiness certainly tops out at 100,000. I don't believe that. It may depend on how much money is required to cover your basic needs, but then more importantly, what brings you joy personally? So there's a common theory that if we spend more money on experiences, that will make us happier than spending money on material objects. Some studies, a lot of studies back that up. But for some people, if you're buying a tangible item that brings you happiness, so if you have a strong affinity for something, buying that thing, for example, it might be a, a, you know, a classic car or whatever it is that you're really passionate about, that will uplift your happiness. So Ultimately, money will increase your potential for life satisfaction, but depending on how you spend it, if you spend it on experiences or items that align with your values, your happiness goes up. The real power of money, though, is its ability to help us pursue the things we need to be happy and, more importantly, to cope with the difficult things in life. But part of that link, as I said, between money and happiness is relative, and this is where things get tricky. It's more about how rich we are compared to the people around us. I mean, we have lifestyle creep. So if we get more money, our expenses and our expectations will often go up. And there's also, you know, you're talking about people who are, who've had a big uplift in wealth, and many people have in the last 12 months because of COVID. You can distinguish between the frequency and the intensity of happiness. So higher incomes are more consistently linked to happiness frequency, but not necessarily happiness intensity. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you have that type of money you can do more leisure activities you can engage in more leisure pursuits such as socializing and exercising so income might bring happiness through more intensely happy experience not necessarily but through a greater number of experiences that make us happy <laughs> so many things so many things it, uh, it's so interesting and I I'm sure everyone listening, because I'm sitting here going, gosh, that's tr so true with this scenario and that scenario. Uh, the one that I find funny in my own life was when my husband and I didn't have children, we used to go out to dinner all the time, all the time. And each individual dinner out didn't mean a great deal. It was just something we did all the time because we were a bit lazy and couldn't be bothered to cook, I imagine. It was nice and we could. Now we have kids and one night out is worth 20 nights out for children <laughs> to be able to do that. It's uh, exactly the same experience, but the way we uh, we feel about spending the money now is quite different uh, based on the uh, the context we do it in, I think. So one of, you've mentioned time and how people use money to buy, uh, spend their money on things that give them time perhaps or how they're using their time. They're talking about ha their happiness and how they're using their money has any of this changed through COVID? There was all this talk about, you know, starting to bake bread and grow vegetables and all this kind yeah. of stuff because we're all at home. Um, and some yeah. people are like, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. Stop talking about it. I just want to go to a nightclub. Uh, has how people spend their money to buy time, is it giving them greater happiness or less happiness? Are we getting any data on that? We are. I'm a little bit obsessed with this topic because um, lack of time has been probably one of the, the biggest detractors of wellbeing in Australia for, for quite a while, particularly for younger people, particularly younger women. And there's it's a really complex issue because there's numerous surveys that have been run over the years that everybody says, I'm overburdened now. I've got too much work and that is impacting my ability to spend time with family and friends. 
Um, but the facts really don't support this, at least over a longer period, because the total time people are working, paid or otherwise, hasn't really increased that much in recent decades. And we'll have a look at COVID in a minute. And parents who say they're really worried about spending ins insufficient time with their children are actually spending significantly more than perhaps our parents would have with us. And I think part of the answer, and there's a lot of complexity around why are people's attitudes changing to time, part of it's generational change. So if you're my age, you grew up in an era where you undervalued your own time. So that made it a lot easier for companies and governments to take it for free. So you could perhaps work unpaid overtime. You might be stuck in a queue. You might be stuck on hold. But there's also a really interesting generational shift that's happening. If you're my daughter's age and she's 18, she's grounding her expectations in how and her value of time with businesses like Uber. So if the Uber doesn't turn up within three to five minutes, you know, she's incredibly frustrated. She's transposing that onto her interactions with banks and all sorts of other people. And I think increasingly there will be real value in identifying the products and services that occupy people and businesses' time without delivering real value. So really all businesses, when I talk to them, you know, you should ask, am I draining people's time? Are there opportunities for companies to make time interaction more seamless through use of tech, but to over-deliver to exceed expectations? And technologies become really important because there's also a technological reason for our desire for more time. So we live now in an infinite world. So we've all got more emails, more entertainment options, more things to do, more meetings, and designers of technology become so much better locking us into our devices. And while in many parts of the world, and as we've seen now in Queensland, you know, during the, the current lockdown, people are still experiencing significant disruptions to their lives during COVID, life really is starting to revert to some type of normality. But We've seen some researchers predict, well, the standard nine to five, five day a week, work week, that's gone forever. And other people are claiming that employees are now spending more time working than ever before because of COVID. So we wanted to really understand that. And back in 2018, we undertook a really extensive survey of how people used and valued time. And we've just recently updated that research to see what's changed post COVID. And what really emerges is that clearly the pandemic has forced most of us to think more consciously about our time. During COVID, you know, many of us experienced much less structured, more distorted senses of time because a lot of the, you know, movement restrictions impacted sort of activities like going to the office or taking kids to sporting activities. And many of the ways that we typically marked time before became, became disrupted. So, you know, we couldn't travel and social gatherings and so forth. And most people are not used to that type of uncertainty. And it's not uncommon for people during sort of a traumatic experience like a pandemic to feel like time is slowing down. But for some people, they felt under more time pressure than ever before. And you mentioned before, you know, people are having to juggle working from home with, you know, educating their kids and, and a whole range of things. But other, other people experienced something called time affluence. Basically, they were unable to work, so they had more time than ever before, and that brought additional stresses. Now, we know people, everyone values time, but more particularly, some people value time more than others. We know women typically feel under more time pressure than men across all age groups, particularly young women, and money doesn't really help here. Higher income earners feel under more time pressure than lower income earners. It's more apparent with people, again, with children, even more so than we saw pre-COVID. The thing that's really interesting to me is on average, when we looked at a typical week, so how do people spend their time sleeping, doing chores, working, it really doesn't look that much different pre-COVID and post-COVID. So we're spending roughly the same amount of time doing similar things, but 
time is money is really true because one of the really telling questions we ask people is on average how much would you pay for one extra hour of time for yourself a day now the number's not quite so important and it's on average $98 but it's who would pay the most and uh, not surprisingly for me, women in the 30 to 49-year-old age group would pay $207 for that extra hour, so more than double. Now, there are probably many reasons for that, but I'll tell you one that I'm pretty sure of is in the average working week, women in that age group spend an awful lot more time on housework and errands and preparing food than do men. So I think if there's one thing you should do with money, particularly if you're a woman between 30 to 49 with kids, it's buy time. So outsource, if you financially can, unpleasant or dislike tasks so you can win some of that back. And, of course, outsourcing is a luxury. I know I appreciate that, but it's not going to cost you $207 an hour. So little anecdote but a funny one. My, my husband, when he was home during COVID, was like, how did we get all of this done before? I was like... <laughs> We didn't. I did. Like he was at work yep. and I would be doing all of the kids stuff and all of those things. So I wonder if a lot of couples things have changed a bit because when you've got both of you in the home, you both see what needs to be done in the home. Because if there's only one of you in the home, uh, that one person is sort of more responsible for those activities. Which leads into the next question about home. So many of us were in the home for so long last year and uh, and some of us felt very privileged to be in our homes because we live in spaces that we love and plenty of people clearly did not feel that way and ask any tradie in Australia right now who is flat out and fully booked for the next 12 months because they're helping fix people's homes and build them to be uh, a little bit more user-friendly if you have to work from home and so on. And then there would be other people, I imagine, for whom home is a very... Uh, undesirable place to be, or they don't have a home, not a permanent one. Yeah. Is this an area that money really matters? You're talking about money buying time for those people who are under yeah. pressure, and I completely relate to that, but home, I imagine, is also one as well. It is, um, and our relationship with our homes is really quite complex because our homes mean a lot to us psychologically. They satisfy a lot of our really innate human desires, our desire for security and for safety. You know, they stop us scanning for constant dangers, and it's also where many of our biological needs are met. So, our, you know, we sleep there for warmth, for food and so forth. And during COVID, of course, that's been particularly important because it, it allows us to have that, that greater level of control. And for many, it's become this centre of work and, and remote learning. And what we're, of course, seeing now as an economist is a pandemic era boom in renovations. COVID's also likely really to have a profound impact on home design. I'm married to an interior designer. and We're already seeing, you know, the reconfigurations of homes happening. And there's no doubt we've got this new reverence for our homes. But the one additional way money helps, or at least how you use it, is when we look at wellbeing profiles of those who own their home versus those who rent, property owners appear much happier than people who rent. And it doesn't actually matter how much the property costs. So it seems that simply owning a property, even with a mortgage, helps lift our wellbeing. And while wellbeing is a bit higher if you own a house versus an apartment, either of them will do compared to renting. And it doesn't really matter if it's a mansion or a beach shack. It just seems to help. So money is in the top sort of things, but it's not top of the list, but it certainly helps incrementally there. So if you do you have like a list of drivers of wellbeing? I'm assuming yep. home ownership would be quite high on that list. It is. It's in the top five. Yeah, right. um, and it, it is important. So, yeah, one of the really interesting aspects of the research is we ask people what adds to well-being and what detracts from well-being. 
and and those things give us a really good insight as to what we need to do to to improve our well-being. I think most people can appreciate that, but we talk about house prices all the time in Australia and it's it's blown up as an issue again after predictions of terrible cataclysmic falls in house prices last year. It's gone the other yeah. way. And uh, there are two houses for sale on my street at the moment and, you know, you can't get a car park on a Saturday morning. It's extraordinary the numbers of people who, yeah. are, you know, who are actively looking, who want to become homeowners, who want a bigger house, a smaller house, all those sorts of things. It's such an, such an extraordinarily... Uh, important issue in Australia. Does it? Does the Australian data differ to other countries with home ownership? Do you think? Uh, not in terms of what's ha- well, what's happening to house prices is happening in many parts of the world. Um, we we run a quarterly residential property survey where we ask real estate agents, property developers, and investors across the country about the market, and we've been running that for probably eight years or so. And their expectations, and again, it's just the expectations of the market are, are off the scale. It's the highest they've been since we've been tracking this. Um, which sort of, and what's interesting in this market is that you've got price growth in both the regional, well, outperformance in some coastal regional areas, as well as the cities. Um, and, as, you know, the billion dollar question is, will that net migration continue towards some of the regional areas or will it slow? And I'm not so sure. Um, it'd be interesting. I mean, the ABS data really supports the fact that people have, there has been this exodus. But we've been asking all the way through COVID Australians to what extent are you going to fully relocate to a lifestyle property or leave the state? And it's still a very small number of people that say they're doing that. So I I wouldn't mind guessing that there will be some drift back towards the city. I think it's never wise to underestimate the power of a city, the lure of a city. Uh, But I think the question really is, to what extent will that be sustained? Are people going to drift back towards the cities? And in my view, you know, the, one of the things that we're seeing in parts of regional Australia, as I mentioned, particularly coastal areas of regional Australia, is really quite extraordinary price growth. And we might get to a point where that price increase starts to price people out from moving. So I think while we have seen that, that drift and we might continue to see it a little bit further, that that exodus will, will slow considerably and we will get return people back towards the cities. Yeah, interesting. I think it's hard to imagine that moving to a coastal area will dramatically improve your well-being if you need a $2 million mortgage to do it. Um, so one thing I do want to come back to, and it's you've talked about being able to buy time with money. Being able to buy a home is so valuable for us. It matters a great deal. So these are the places where man, money can contribute greatly to your well-being. You talked about 40% of the population having quite significant levels of anxiety, which I find yeah. astonishing and terrible. Are there specific things related to money that are detracting from people's well-being or is it a number of other factors? No, no, there definitely are and, and absolutely money is an important factor there. So the number one thing that people say detracts from their well-being is their debt and it's debt outside of mortgage and that is the key detractor of well-being for the largest number of Australians. But after debt, it's a whole series of non-monetary factors. It's things like abuse and victimisation, time, as we mentioned before, substance use, they're now mortgaged. And outside of our mortgage, none of these big negative drivers of well-being improve much based on income. So the really bad things in life will often transcend money, but having money can help you deal with them, certainly. And in recent months, what's been interesting is we've seen people become much less concerned about debt. 
And there's certainly an overwhelming amount of research on general anxiety. There's not an awful lot about the emotional aspects of our finances. And we know that, you know, some anxiety about money is really common. But if that starts to develop into a concern having a major impact on our well-being, it could become really a serious problem. And we know money and finances are frequently linked to low levels of well-being, but particularly mental health issues. And what we've seen, you know, having done this research for 15 years or so, most people, irrespective of their wealth, don't like debt. And household debt in Australia has risen in recent years, largely due to mortgage debt. But the ability of households to service that debt has also really improved. And most of the debt remains quite well secured and many households have built up a substantial overpayment reserve. We know that about seven in 10 Australians holding debt believe their debt is more than manageable. Only about one in 20 say that they're holding far more debt than manageable. But not only is it debt, when we push a little bit more deeply into it, it's the type of debt that is held is really important. So the most commonly held debt in Australia is credit card debt, then our mortgage. But credit card debt is now causing the least financial anxiety and it's at its lowest level since about early 2019. However, if you're a younger person or a woman with credit card debt stress, it's, it's significantly higher. We know our stress from home loan debt has also fallen, but there is one type of debt that really stands out in terms of anxiety, and that is short-term payday loans, particularly for younger people, 18 to 29. So it is best to avoid that particular type of debt if you can. Yeah, I imagine that that's the kind of debt you accrue because you're in distress anyway, that you yeah. you would be taking it out because you're in financial stress and then it just compounds. Uh, it seems very logical, a d- difficult situation for people who are facing into that. You've talked a lot about young people and the particular stresses that they face so they've got higher levels of anxiety. They're less likely to own a home, so they're not going to get that little boost from being able to uh, support themselves financially and so on. So some of the more obvious things that contribute to your well-being, they don't currently have access to, but the nice thing about being young is you've got plenty of time on your hands. Does this stuff get better as you get older? This is a really good news. Uh, There's a really important, and it's a really consistent finding among economists who have been studying wellbeing over the last 20 years or so, and that is that our wellbeing levels tend to decline during our 20s and 30s. They bottom out in about our late 40s, early 50s. Then they start increasing again well into retirement age, and that correlation has been sort of loosely labelled the happiness curve. And there's a lot of theories as to why that might be the case. One is that with age brings a new sense of contentment with our lives that might have been missing when we were a bit younger. And so in effect, our values start to change. And as a result of that, so do our expectations. And our research on wellbeing really supports the view that with age comes higher wellbeing. So we see life satisfaction rise, anxiety fall as we get older. And that can continue to climb provided our health is maintained well into our 70s and our 80s. And our research, I think, shed some light on why that might be the case. So if we look at the drivers of wellbeing, so what adds or detracts most for wellbeing, and we compare those results by age, the things that matter most to all of us, things like our family and our relationships and our standard of living in our homes, provide even more positive uplift for wellbeing the older we get, which gives some real support to that notion that with age comes this real perspective about what is important to happiness. Now, whether that perspective is gained through changing expectations or something else, that's the real debate. And there's A lot of research that says our capacity just for more complex thinking keeps on developing right through our midlife. And it's part of that capacity that enables us to have this more nuanced view of life and be more happy and more contemplative about it. But uh, there's a really interesting paradox with this finding, and it does have a lot to do with money. 
And that is that while we seem to get happier and less anxious as we age and move into retirement, our perception about how our lives might be in retirement is really different. And a key cause of that is financial. So when we ask Australians, irrespective of age, what is it you are most worried about in relation to your current household financial position? Being able to finance retirement is consistently the biggest worry. So about six in 10 Australians don't believe they'll have enough wealth to live their desired standard in retirement for the rest of their life. And those concerns are largely being driven by a savings and investment shortfall. Now, you might know this better than me, Jeff. I haven't checked these numbers since we last surveyed it, I think, late 2019. But if you ask Australians back then, how much money do you think you will need upon retirement? They typically say a bit over a million dollars. You ask them how much they typically think they'll have, and it's usually under 700000 in savings investment net of their homes. If you compare then to people who are actually retired, how much money on average, and averages aren't, I know that interesting, but on average, how much do you actually need? It's about $700,000. So it consistently suggests on average, bearing in mind there's no such thing as an average person, that many people yet to retire could be overestimating how much they need. And I think the other problem is that most of us have this magic number in our brains that when we think we're going to retire. And of course, we have very little ability to actually control that number. So on average, it's still around the retirement age of about 65. But what we also find is about one in two people retire earlier than they'd planned to. About four in 10 do that because of ill health. And that's particularly the case for men. The next biggest reasons are things like job losses and family, particularly for women. Only one in 25 people tell us that they were able to retire earlier than they expected because they could do so. So I think our plans become a little bit unstuck. And I think it's also interesting that despite the fact that a lot of people, particularly in a boom market like now, have so much equity tied up in their homes, when you say to people, will you sell your property? Will you unlock that equity to fund your retirement? Very few people want to go there and actually consider that. Now, I'm, I'm certainly not a financial advisor, but the thing that really always surprises me is despite the fact that people will be really engaged about their concerns about money, their concerns about not having enough retirement, about six in 10 people tell us that they're doing absolutely nothing about it. <laughs> Men are a little bit more proactive than women, but, you know, it's young people, 18 to 29, who are by far the most, most proactive. I just, I love that comment because it's so true. <laughs> it's so true. So I, the, I want to say the third podcast I recorded, uh, so we're going back like three and a half years now, is called Busting the Million Dollar Retirement Myth. If anyone wants to go back to it, I don't think the numbers will have changed very much. Uh, and I can certainly uh, write up a piece on it. We can republish it on the Trade website if anyone's interested, which is talking about this idea that you need a million dollars. What that shows is a very... Um, the million dollars shows a very poor understanding of our social security system. You are better off retiring at around the $600,000, $700,000 mark and getting a little bit of age pension than you are saving a million dollars and getting nothing. And for the vast majority of people when you retire, I think the number's about 80% now. It used to be 85%. You will get some sort of age pension once you hit age, age 65 now for everybody. And that continues to support you through your retirement as you run down your retirement savings. So this anxiety that you're talking about, it's absolutely there, but it's largely there, I think, because people have never looked at what will kick in at the time that they retire. And all of this uncertainty about investment markets and so on, having to live off a lump sum is terribly confusing because we've never done it before. Um, but yeah, it's it's quite fascinating. So there's really good research where you can model out what your retirement scenario is going to be 
And if 60% of people have never done that, you're going to be pretty fearful. Mm. So we're talking largely to a group of educated, engaged investors. And one anecdote I must bring to you is that we have a client who is 98 years old, who recently gave us a great deal of feedback on the NAB Trade Academy. So he listened to all of our educational research and all of our educational content and gave us feedback on whether or not it was good enough at the age of 98. So don't be too fearful of retirement. You could be uh, still with it and still of that caliber at that age and one of our, one of our great clients. You've talked about young people being more proactive with thinking about retirement and investing. We are seeing that absolutely at the moment, young people coming to invest for the first time and so on. But there are large groups of investors who take investing really seriously. They're looking at their money every single day. They're looking at their portfolio every day. Does anything in your research suggest that being too interested in your money is a problem? Um, <laughs> there is a fine line between checking your balances too often and not checking them at all. So the the you know the opposite is worse, which is never checking. But yeah, there are certainly instances where people do elevate their stress by by overemphasizing their their current account and watching things far too often. I think it sort of comes back to the the old adage of what we spoke about at the start. Is it really different? To, you know, often perception is quite different to reality. So, you know, we see that with older Australians. So you talk to, you know, the over 65s and they're really quite happy. You talk to people who are about to enter retirement and they're really fearful of retirement. And I think often when we talk to people about what life might look like, it is very different to when you talk to people about what it's like. So, for example, if you ask non-retired people about what they're going to do when they retire, they'll tell you all about studying, learning a new skill. I'm going to start a business. I'm going to travel extensively. I'm going to live overseas. And I'm simply not going to have enough money to do any of that. Then when you speak to people who are actually retired, then they talk about a whole lot of other competing priorities, things like parents still being alive, supporting their children financially, maybe helping their kids get into the property market. And their lives are still really great, but they're just different to what they expected. Now, a lot of it, I think, comes back to money. But the real power of money really is that ability to help us pursue the things that we need to make us happy and to cope with more difficult things in life. But what we're not really good at is projecting forward into the future with any great certainty. So I think a lot of that anxiety, which leads to people checking their balances really frequently, is this, I'm never going to have enough, but never going to have enough for a lifestyle that really we can't articulate now what it's going to look like in the future leads to even more anxiety. So I think you're right. I think there is that that tendency. And often it's people, and we see that in some professions, we see it in the health profession, for example, who are naturally more risk averse. And that's what you want in a surgeon, for you know, you would like him to be risk averse. Um, but they're often the ones that can have, you know, in our business survey, some of the highest levels of business conditions now, but some of the lowest levels of business confidence because they are so fearful and so risk averse about the future. So I think there is that happy balance between not too risk averse, but also keeping your eye on things and certainly not being, you know, inactive like that six and 10 Australians clearly are. Yeah, trying to find that balance between the uh, the 60% who would perhaps prefer not to know, even though they know that's not going to work out terribly well in yeah. the end, and the group who are causing themselves some anxiety. I think the thing that's most thrilling for me is that so many people have come to markets, started investing, started taking it seriously. It's a wonderful thing. And a lot of them are being extremely prudent and kind of 
just getting in there and putting one foot in front of the other when it comes to investing and building a portfolio and so on. Uh, so finding a way to do it without making yourself crazy is, uh, is always the challenge. Absolutely. And knowing what, you know, what money does for you. So having a net balance of a certain figure is not going to help you unless you know how to unlock the value of that money for you personally. And there is no right answer to that. Um, but you've really got to spend, and so few people actually spend time trying to understand what truly makes them happy. And, you know, one of the things that always interests me is I've got a list of 50 things where I can say to people, what adds to your well-being, what detracts from your well-being. And people can articulate that reasonably well, and it doesn't bounce that much over time. So then you step back from it and say, well, if we are able to define what makes us happy and what doesn't make us happy, why aren't we all happy? So why aren't we all just doing more of the things that make us happy and doing less of the things that make us unhappy? And I think, you know, the answer is often if you want people to change behaviour, we often historically thought that giving them more information or telling them what to do works, um, and it doesn't work. And I think if you talk to psychologists, they'll say, you know, the best way to unlock those sort of things is to remove barriers to people being happy. And when I look at that list of things that are detracting from wellbeing, there are two things that really stand out. One is debt. So really get your, you know, your head around how much debt you're comfortable with and your capacity to pay it back and how that debt is helping you generate wealth. So while people don't like a mortgage, top five is owning a house. So it's very hard to own a house if you've never had a mortgage. So it's how you use that money. But the other one is that lack of time. People, you know, time and money are very closely related. And if there's one way people can use their money to unlock more wellbeing benefits, it's clearly buying back time. That's such a fantastic summary. I love it. And I think people are going to be able to kind of pull together so much of what, you, what you've been talking about going, I could perhaps, like the, uh, the rational human at the beginning of our conversation, <laughs> make more rational decisions about how I use my money to, uh, to enhance my well-being, which is a wonderful idea. Then you produce these surveys and this research on a regular basis. Can people go and have a look at it? They can, certainly. Uh, it's all on business research and insights on the NAB website. Of those 2,000 Australians, we talk to them about their wellbeing, but we also look at financial wellbeing, we look at financial hardship, uh, we look at consumer behaviour, and that's been changing quite dramatically. So we use that 2,000 Australian panel to really ask them a whole range of things about their, their financial position, but also just how they're feeling about life. And I think, you know, the one thing that, you know, not too many people were reading this sort of research maybe 10 years ago, and then along came Brexit, then along came Donald Trump, and then as long's come COVID, and there is a much greater appetite, certainly amongst our customers, to try and understand how people are feeling. And I often think, you know, why wouldn't a business want to better understand how their customers are feeling, particularly at the moment? Because there's a unique opportunity, I think, for businesses to engage with consumers in a different way, because getting people to change behaviour is incredibly difficult. But what we've seen in the last 12 months, things like more purchases online, things that, you know, consumers will be often quite resistant to change, even if that change is going to benefit them. But what we are now in is this unique point of time, biggest social experiment in modern history where people are actually adapting to change and finding out that change is not such a bad thing. Dean Pearson from the NAB Economics team, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks a lot, Jim.
Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We love getting your feedback and we love getting your questions, anything that you would like us to discuss as a topic. This is one I've heard about more than once and so glad we covered it. Please just email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.